0: So, good morning. Uh, welcome on this um, rainy Wednesday morning. Uh, today, I want to continue with this uh, foundational teaching that we've been exploring for a number of the week, a number of weeks. This is the sixth <coughs> of the talks on the <coughs> foundations or the establishments of mindfulness or of sati or of that clear and discerning awareness, um, which again, uh, these are instructions on the core practices for, for us, for this center, um, this very simple practice that has gone so deeply into um, our own lives, into the lives of many Westerners and is really entering uh, our culture in a very uh, rapid way. Last weekend, I was uh, teaching with my colleague and close friend Diana Winston in Los Angeles at the Mindful Awareness Research Center connected with UCLA where we had a large number of people uh, practicing. Diana teaches probably four times a week. She says she teaches mindfulness in a secular way without the Buddhist framework. And she teaches probably several hundred people a week. She said that on, uh, I think on Thursday mornings, they have a half-hour mindfulness class at a local museum. And it's over lunch hour, 150 to 200 people come to practice mindfulness. So here we're really looking into, in these uh, weeks, the uh, basic instructions And the hope is that this will energize and inspire our practice and will help us have more precision, more uh, understanding, uh, in a sense, more encouragement to practice. Well, I think can also help. This is one of my aims, uh, both for myself and for uh, anyone who might uh, be listening to the talks, that the practice can give us... um, ways of bringing uh, depth to our everyday practices. That at times our practice can be calming and peaceful, but sometimes it can be a little bit rote, or the practice can be generally peaceful and helpful, but we may not have so much uh, clarity in terms of our minds. And I know this is a kind of an occupational hazard for meditators that we get into a lazy, calm meditation. You know, I don't know if there's a technical term for that kind of meditation. But has anyone ever experienced something like that? <laughs> okay, so a few hands go up, and a few hands that uh, do not go up. Still, the heads nod. <laughs> so that's very much my hope for for this series, for the. Uh, Session today, I want to continue with the third foundation of mindfulness, which is uh, mindfulness. We might say of thoughts and emotions. Very crucial instructions for our practice. Um, and I think in addition to uh, in addition to deepening our practice, we also, in a way, get refinement and a larger repertoire of practices that we can do, either when appropriate or sometimes sequentially over time. So for example, the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body, which uh, probably most of us do, at least for some time in every session. When we do mindfulness of breathing, we're bringing attention to the body. And again, for many of us, and this was very much my experience, bringing attention to the breath and to the body in various ways, can be a revelation. It takes it certainly took me and can take you uh, away from a thinking dominated experience. And that was certainly my initial experience. It may, may or may not have been your predominant experience at the beginning. And so we have the first foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body. There are in the text itself, there are fourteen different practices. We primarily focus on mindfulness of breathing and then mindfulness of the body in various postures and activities, so that we might, with our practice, uh, develop mindfulness of uh, washing the dishes, mindfulness of cooking, mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of uh, being at a meeting, being present with our bodies. And these can all be of tremendous help to bringing us back to the present moment. And I've emphasized how I I believe that mindfulness of the body is crucial for a heavily mental culture where there is a lot of thinking, that it's very, very crucial for helping us to be present-centered, to come back to our senses. It really also points to the way that we can really work with mindfulness of the body, not just in terms of body sensations, but also in terms of the sensations of seeing, hearing, uh, and so forth, these would all be variants of mindfulness of the body, so that when we're listening to music, or listening to the wind, or listening to a creek, we can, do, we can have that be one of the kinds of mindfulness of the body that we practice, and this can be one of the ways that mindfulness of the body can deeply enhance the uh, present-centered experience, and in fact, help us to come more into present-centered experience in the natural world and, and being with others can help us uh, really be, be present in a way. Uh, the second foundation of mindfulness, which we explored uh, two weeks ago, and some last time, is the mindfulness of feeling tone, which is this very crucial practice that I hope that I've helped um, develop further interest in. Uh, the being able to be mindful of the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or uh, neutral in the moment, uh, especially valuable because when we're not attendant to the sense of pleasant in our experience, when it's simply there and we're not aware of it, we will tend to grab after something, whether it's having pleasant uh, tastes, we will tend to grab after maybe the fork is moving even as the uh, even as the mouth is chewing, <laughs> right, that experience. Uh, because a pleasant experience can trigger wanting. And again, uh, there's nothing wrong in itself with uh, the pleasant or wanting. It's the unconscious nature of it that can be a problem. And particularly when it leads to... Um, unconscious behavior, and in somehow the the wisdom dimension would be, and in somehow thinking that in accumulating pleasant experiences, I can reach human happiness. These teachings suggest that that is delusive. (laughs) And the fact that the, uh, not so explicit in these teachings, but the related teachings are that actually the deepest happiness is a kind of contentment and awareness that is the inherent quality of our being. It actually does come out some in the third foundation of mindfulness that we remember where we're instructed to notice when there's not wanting, when there's not uh, the, the uh, uh, pushing away and that we can actually notice the lack of greed, hatred, delusion. And this is actually points to the way that there is an inherent awareness and freedom in our very being. And this is actually taken to be the deep ground of happiness. And we'll come back to that some in terms of the third foundation. So the second foundation, very vital. I particularly invited people to practice uh, during Thanksgiving, whether it was with the food or with the um, uh, companions or fellowship or lack of fellowship. And to notice pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral over Thanksgiving, we didn't. We did not have a full debriefing of Thanksgiving last time, and perhaps uh, we can we can come back to that in in the discussion. But a very very crucial aspect of practice. We can work with pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in a lot of different ways. I have the uh, handout that I gave out the last few times, which gives uh, multiple ways to practice. Maybe the most uh, obvious way to practice is just to look for when pleasant or unpleasant are strong. And then partly study the experience. The invitation for all of the guidance on mindfulness is not to have this or that state be present, but rather to notice what's happening. And that's very revolutionary. In other words, we are just invited to notice Don't try to get rid of the unpleasant, but notice what it's like. Don't try to get rid even of the pleasant. Notice what it's like. And so, the noticing is taken to lead to insight, understanding, and ultimately wise response. That's the idea. So, In actuality, nothing is outside of the scope of mindfulness. We can have any experience And we're always invited to be mindful. We can have greed, we can have hatred, we can have despair, we can have all sorts of difficult or unpleasant experiences. And the invitation always, notice the way they are. Because the whole approach is that when we notice the way experience is and we hang out with experience, it's really to say, we could say in the terminology of Western culture, be scientific. Study it. Observe experience. Don't go so much on the usual rote reactions in which we want to increase the pleasant and want to decrease the unpleasant. It's really study what's there. See the way it is. What is pleasant like? What is unpleasant like? Achan sumedo, who is a Western teacher, Achan just means teacher in in Thai language. He's a Westerner who studied at Thai monasteries for a long time with the same teacher that Jack Kornfield has, Achan Cha, or Teacher Cha. He, had this, he has this very simple way of encouraging mindfulness. He says, Develop the kind of mind that can look and can explore and say, It's like this. Desire is like this. Wanting is like this. Anger. It's like this, just to say, what is it like? Oh, this is what this is like. And to have the kind of mind that can study in that way. And especially as we study, we're especially interested, I think, in, in, in how mindfulness can guide us in two ways. The first way is that we become especially observant of when we're not mindful, of when the mind as it were gets stuck or when we get uh, uh, caught or fixated and the mindfulness can notice that and study it and help us eventually to have a release of that fixating tendency and to, uh, to act wisely so it's really really interesting mindfulness can be there in a sense at the same time that we're stuck. Magical, isn't it? When you think about it, that we can have an awareness or an observation of any states going on. And, you know, <coughs> in the brain, we would say that we begin, if we we're <coughs> talking about brain science, we would say that even though we are caught maybe in an habitual pattern where the neurons are firing and we're going down this neural pathway, let's say, of a habit where I'm uh, uh, having a repetitive negative thought, let's say. There's a well-worn, as it were, neural pathway. And I'm going down that neural pathway and I can still, with mindfulness, notice it. And the mindfulness is actually setting up a parallel neural pathway. Very interesting. That in time will become stronger than the old pattern and can actually lead to the weakening of the old uh, pathway, the old neural pathway, the weakening of the habit, and the increase in awareness which then leads to wise responsiveness. Really fascinating, right? Amazing that we can actually be aware of a bad habit, so to speak, or we can be aware of good habits as well that we can have awareness of our own action. that we c- it's, it's amazing. We, we are not so caught in habitual behavior. Really, really interesting. So, so mindfulness depends on that, and what we increasingly do is we look for where we're stuck. A huge amount of our mindfulness practice is having our radar up for when we get stuck, fixated, caught in old habits, whether related to the pleasant or the unpleasant, we notice them, we release them as best we can. Really interesting. That's, that's a lot of what we do. We, we, we strengthen mindfulness and we strengthen it by being with the breath, strengthening concentration. We strengthen mindfulness and then we're on the lookout for fixation. Question of clarification? If it's a question of clarification, yes, if it's a larger question, we'll, uh, we'll wait on it. Okay. And so we... Um, We strengthen uh, our concentration, and then we develop the mindfulness, and then we uh, especially look out for where the mind gets stuck. That's it. We have to simplify our practice. That's a large part of what we do. And then uh, parallel with mindfulness, we also strengthen uh, beautiful qualities like mindfulness, awareness, uh, loving-kindness, compassion, and so forth. This is the entirety of our practice. This is what we have thousands of pages of books, hundreds of books. It all can be boiled down to what I just said. It all can be boiled down to one or two statements. Strengthen your mindfulness, strengthen your awakened qualities, and look out with your mindfulness to where you get stuck. Okay. Go home. (laughs) That's it. And as we do that, uh, we also we tune in to where we're stuck, and we also increasingly tune in to where we're not stuck, and that's one of the interesting uh, qualities. We tune into the absence of stuckness, or the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, as we were looking at last time, and we c- increasingly tune into where we are free, where there is awareness, where there is a kind heart, and as we tune into that. They get bigger. They increase, and we tune into this deeper awareness, love, compassion, wisdom. Again, this is the essence of it. Everything else, as it says in the um, what the some of the Jewish uh, uh, words uh, where they say, um, yeah, all else is commentary. <laughs> we could say that you've got the essence. The rest of the talk, all future weeks, every, all the books in the bookstore is commentary. <laughs> That's the essence of it. So if you, you know, in Tibetan tradition that these are sometimes called pith instructions, p-i-t-h, pith instructions. And so sometimes if you were practicing on your own, you would just remember, maybe at home, just remember the pith instructions, look out for where I'm stuck. You could say that to yourself at the beginning of a sitting. It would be very helpful. Look out for where I'm stuck. Look out and develop where I'm not stuck and increase those qualities of openness, freedom, awareness. That's it. So again, okay. Now the, comp- the further commentary. <laughs> okay. So the uh, third foundation of mindfulness, we have the text that we were looking at. And you remember, let's see where I have, have that text we last time we read the text on the third foundation, this was the text where it says the practitioner knows the mind affected by lust, which is really uh, uh the same as greed the word raga means that kind of compulsive wanting translated here as lust um and then the uh sense of uh uh Knowing when there's uh, greed, knowing when there's hatred, knowing when there's delusion, knowing when there's the absence of it, and then uh, further it says, one knows the contracted mind is contracted mind, distracted mind is distracted mind, and the exalted mind is exalted mind, unexalted mind is ex- unexalted mind, surpassed mind is surpassed mind, unsurpassed mind is unsurpassed mind. One understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind, and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. One understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. This this is the further commentary. And what this does is it actually, to uh, make some sense of this, it gives three sets of instructions, of which I suggested last time that the first set, for us, is probably the most important. This is to see when there's uh, compulsive greed, wanting, or compulsive aversion, some translated as hatred, or some kind of delusion. In other words, these are, these are the three most basic ways that the mind gets stuck. And that's why they're further identified. Uh, it could be the instruction, notice the mind is stuck, notice the mind is unstuck, onto the fourth foundation. <laughs> we, we could say that. But here we bring it out in more detail. So the the first set of instructions are about noticing when there is uh, stuckness in the form of compulsive wanting, compulsive pushing away, or delusion. Last time I also mentioned how a big part of this practice is to notice when we are caught in greed, what it's like. To notice that it's there, but also to study it, to follow that instruction of saying, it's like this. What is greed like? And I mentioned last time what some of what we found when Diana Winston and I taught our greed management class, if you remember that last time. And I I said that we actually tried to study what greed felt like in the moment. This was part of the homework of the greed management class. What is it like? And I mentioned our final exam doing silent walking meditation through Bed Bath & Beyond, newly opened in El Cerrito. And and actually noticing, oh, I really want that, and doing silent walking meditation. And, um, you know, a very interesting experience that, of course, I had no awareness that two thirds of the products even existed. And I discovered <laughs> desire for things that I hardly knew that, that there was a, a need for, right? You know, that there were all these products. And we were asked to study the greed and what we found. What is greed like? It's a kind of compulsive wanting in which almost everything else gets obliterated from consciousness, right? Consequences don't matter. Wisdom goes out the window. Other people's desires don't matter. Only the satisfaction of my wanting matters. You know, the, the mind gets very, what, narrow. Tunnel vision is a quality of greed, you know, And so we study greed or we study what does it feel like when you have aversion? Let's say you have a difficult interaction with someone else and aversion arises and it's there in the mind a lot, let's say repetitive thinking of aversive nature towards this person or towards what happened, then you would be invited, study it. What does it feel like? And again, that's the, uh, in a sense, the main invocation of these four foundations of mindfulness. It's not about, uh, as it were, skillfully changing our states of mind. That's an important practice, but that's not what the mindfulness is about. The mindfulness is not about changing a state of mind, it's about studying everything. And what's beautiful about this, again, is that everything becomes part of practice. There is no experience that you could have for which practice would not be the best response. You can have the most difficult experience, you can be the most lost, you can be the most confused, you can always remember, what is this like? Let me be mindful. There's Nothing is outside of practice. That's pretty radical when you think of it. It's not like, oh, I better get it together so I can practice. It's not like that, right? It's that whatever's happening, I can notice it. Sometimes, we may only be able to notice I'm stuck for a second and then we go back to being stuck. That's okay. That's doing our best. And I'll come um, towards the end and talk about how mindfulness with thoughts and emotion relates to being skillful, particularly when we're stuck. Because sometimes it's actually hard or almost impossible to be mindful. And we do need a repertoire of tools to help us come unstuck. I'll come back to that in a little while. So this first set of instructions that we emphasized last time, really noticing when there's greed, hatred, or delusion. Very, very crucial. Having a special radar. And we might actually, at the beginning of our practice, say, I want to particularly study when these strong wanting comes up or if you're going into a situation where you know that there might be strong wanting or strong aversion, give yourself the intention. Let me particularly look out for that. You know? Or if something's just happened, like again, difficult interaction, something difficult happened where there is aversion that's really coming continually, you can really say, let me just watch this. Let me just study this as best I can. The second set of instructions are these instructions about contracted mind and distracted mind. And contracted mind here means when the awareness is kind of shut down. I mentioned last time how it is related to sleepiness to um, the mind being unable really to be present very much and that's what it refers to sleepiness tiredness uh, what's sometimes called sloth and torpor is a translation in of the so-called hindr- one of the so-called hindrances to to mindfulness and so we want to notice, again, nothing is outside of practice. I'm really, really sleepy. We can notice sleepiness. We can actually sometimes study it. And Those of you who've uh, studied sleepiness can know it's very, very interesting because sometimes sleepiness is the result of just the way the energy is in the mind and body. It's not about really needing sleep. And you can su- sometimes try to be aware of sleepiness, and you can actually notice it sometimes uh, like a cloud... Uh, going away. You can notice sleepiness. Sleepiness. There's sleepiness here. And then suddenly the sleepiness, awareness. It's shifted. The cloud has passed. Right. Very interesting. One can do that. And distracted mind is uh, more familiar. It's the mind that is all over the place. And to actually say, now my mind is sleepy, Now my mind is really distracted. When you're sitting, is helpful. Again, mindfulness can prompt wise response. If we are distracted and don't say to ourselves, I'm distracted, we will be less likely to respond skillfully to the situation. So that's that's what the second set of instructions. I'm gonna go over the second and third rather briefly. We could go over them in more depth, but I wanted to go over them uh, briefly. And then the third has to do with different levels of concentration especially that the we have the um, set of instructions on um let's see we have the set of instructions on uh, great and narrow mind which is particularly related to uh, loving kindness where great mind is is loving kindness to all and more uh, narrow mind is loving kindness to one you wouldn't know that from the text but that's what the commentators basically say it's these are all fairly concentrated states it can either be very expansive or very narrow like on one point And, and i'll just i'll just say what these are so you understand but i think less probably less central for our practice and then the second is surpassable and unsurpassable. These have to do with different levels of concentration. With the uh, unsurpassable being the highest level of concentration, it's related to very concentrated states called jhanas. Again, not so, not so relevant for our daily practice. And then concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind uh, more generally. And again, it's helpful to know, when am I not concentrated? When is my, this is, could be could be sort of a synonym of distracted mind. And then last, liberated mind and unliberated mind. And this is um, to know when there's a moment of freedom and when there's not a moment of freedom. And this is especially interesting because <coughs> part of the practice here that's more subtle, that can really result in the kind of deepening, is to tune in to those moments when there's not greed, hatred, delusion, when we're actually content or free, and there are a lot more moments than we think of. I think we are, our minds and our consciousness is so oriented towards finding a problem, right, <laughs> or towards grasping hold of something that we often don't tune in to when there's actually a moment of freedom. Like right now, you may be relatively content, the mind very you know fairly open. Maybe you're not uh, going one way or the other. And there's just a general openness, contentment, and a kind of freedom right now. Right? And some of this practice invites us to tune into that more. It's actually to know that free state that it's there more and actually tuning into it like that can actually increase it. We notice it's there and it can develop. So, and, and so this is an interesting and subtle part of practice of tuning in to our own freedom, our own uh, openness, our own lack of being stuck, really. Lack of being stuck with greed, hatred, delusion. Again, a more subtle aspect of practice, but part of what it does is it helps us to see that when greed, hatred, or delusion are absent, there's kind of a natural awareness and even wisdom that tends to manifest. And that's very, very good news. Again, this is related to the teaching that when we are not stuck... There's basic uh, uh, awareness. There's a basic warmth and kindness. This is Sylvia likes to talk about this a lot. She says, you know, when we're not startled, when we're not stuck in some way, there's a natural goodness which is present in our being. And we can tune into that. And again, a very, uh, we might say, um, tremendous optimism about basic human nature and our basic nature. And this practice, part of mindfulness is to tune into our own qualities of freedom at certain moments when we're, not, when we're not stuck. We're not just taken away. So this is a, partly in our practice, to do this would be to shift some. Because again, I think our training, our conditioning is so much to be on the lookout for, for a problem state. So, a few more words about um, applying the third foundation of mindfulness. Uh, partly, we can use this practice to really uh, be with a range of uh, thoughts and emotions. And we can particularly, one of the tremendous values of the mindfulness practice is particularly be attentive for those kind of thoughts and emotions where we do get stuck. You know, the, to be on the lookout for those particularly negative thoughts or storylines that we each have one some version of it that get us stuck. That can actually be uh, storylines that tell us, I'm, you know, I guess I messed up again. I guess there's something wrong with me. The, on a deeper level, there can be these kinds of storylines that are can be negative towards myself, towards another person, towards experience, that can often get triggered by difficult experiences. And so part of our mindfulness, as we develop it and deepen it, is to be able to be more on the lookout for what are the patterns that, and this is pointing towards the fourth foundation, what are the patterns that tend to trigger difficult thoughts, difficult emotions? And we can study them. We start, can start to name them. This is where my mind goes when I'm in a difficult place. Here is the thought pattern. I've sometimes mentioned that when I do one-on-one work with people, I think the most um, common and I think in some sense the most important counsel that I give is watch the stories that you tell yourself. Again, this is the the pith instruction. (laughs) Watch the stories that you tell yourself and try to track them. Try to be mindful, particularly when something difficult has happened. It's so crucial. You know, because of course, and to notice it as soon after it starts as possible. This is again one of the fruits of our mindfulness practice, where it really can be seen as something that does protect us from suffering, where it's a tremendous boon that we can notice these uh, repetitive thoughts, the emotions, we can stay with them, study them, and we tend to break through the fixated qualities. My experience is that we typically need to be able to do that with our difficult emotions, our difficult patterns, and to do so in some depth. My own personal experience has been through retreats and through daily life application, I've had periods when anger might be a focus, or judgment of others, or judgment of self might be a focus, or fear might be a focus, or sadness might be a focus. And in my experience, we sometimes need these sustained periods of really studying where we get stuck or what's difficult for us. Again, it's one of the uh, glories of our practice. Related to that is, I would say, uh, a corollary or uh, an addition to the mindfulness instructions, which is that sometimes It's very, very hard to be mindful. Sometimes some experiences come where we might be stuck in some way, where the storyline might be so strong that I can't really be mindful of it, you know? Or the emotion might be so strong that it's, I might not even know that it's there, but even if I know that it's there, it might be so strong that it's very hard to be mindful. And I think there are situations like that where it's actually uh, hard, very hard or impossible to actually be mindful with a difficult state. I think we all know when those situations are, when we feel like, oh, you know, we come out of a period, oh, I was really lost in that for half an hour, or I was lost in that mood for two hours or three hours. And it's very important to be able to distinguish when I actually can be mindful from the situations where it's very hard or impossible to be mindful. In the, in the latter situation, I think we need, as it were, a complementary set of tools, which are not the tools of mindfulness, except with the exception of actually knowing that I'm caught in this. We, we need enough mindfulness to know I was just caught in this for the last half hour and it looks like it's going to be another half hour, <laughs> something like that, <laughs> right? We need enough mindfulness to know that. But we might also know this is kind of too much for me right now. This is a lot. And then we need a complementary set of tools that can help us get out of that stuckness to the point where mindfulness might be possible. In other words, we need to know when mindfulness is not so possible. And sometimes we can fool ourselves and just be totally lost and think that we're being mindful in meditation or out of meditation. And so we really need to know that distinction. Then we need to have a set of tools that essentially bring us from the stuck place to more balance. And there are a whole set of tools that can do that, or a whole set of practices. We might Sometimes we can do loving-kindness practice. You know, we can't really be mindful, but if the loving-kindness practice is strong, it's like we almost like parent ourselves we we say there donald things are hard aren't they let's you know you're a good person it's okay <laughs> right you know and we do our version of loving kindness practice which is a concentration practice so it has actually the capability when the concentration is well developed enough to cut through anything and so we may some of us may use mind, uh, metta practice loving kindness practice you wake up in the middle of the night there's a really strong negative pattern, then you use loving-kindness practice. Mindfulness may be too hard, not really adequate, you use loving-kindness practice or compassion practice. Or could be a variety of tools that we use. Some of us, you know, if you're re- we really feel stuck, we might um, talk with a friend, uh, listen to a recording, read something, take a walk, be with beauty, listen to music, and so forth. Right. So there are a set of tools Quite personal, what helps you get out of a stuck place? And this is a complement to the mindfulness instructions for working with thoughts and emotions. I think quite important to bring that in. There's actually um, a text which in a way is complementary. Um, this is the text for the removal of distracting thoughts, which gives it's the and I, w- I won't go into it so much, but there's a whole text which says basically, if you're really stuck, here are five practices that can help you to get out of it. Some of it is actually giving, trying to give oneself uh, wise counsel to reflect, to say, this is really not useful. (laughs) Or do you really want to go down that road? (laughs) Or do you really want to stay here? Or sometimes, and the final technique was, uh, you know, with. With teeth clenched, you 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 apply, you crunch, you use crunching effort, and you you uh, you crush the negative thought with the power of mind, and that's the the final, that's the last resort, you know. And there's colorful language if you actually read the text with clenched teeth, and you know, and the metaphor is if you were you know you know taking care of someone by tossing them to the ground aggressively. Anyway, a little bit ungentle language. But um, in any case, so that, that again, mostly have emphasized mindfulness, but having the set of tools to get out of stuck situations is a necessary complement to these instructions on mindfulness. And to know what those are. Know for yourself, what do you do if you get really stuck with your habitual patterns? What's useful? I think everyone should reflect on that. I think I want to close now and leave... Uh, quite a bit of time for talking together. I want to qu- close with a, a quotation. This is from a uh, Burmese teacher who was the teacher of Achan Cha, uh, a teacher who died about 1950, named Achan Moon M U N, teacher Moon, who was from uh, I think I think no I think from Thailand, and he was one of the great teachers of the first part of the 20th century. There's a wonderful biography. Uh, of him um, that, I don't know if it's in the bookstore, uh, it actually was a, a Donna book, so it may not, may not be available, but maybe I'll bring it in sometime and read from it. It's a delightful story of his practice, you know, more or less from the end of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century walking through the rainforest of Thailand and Burma practicing uh, with fear by sitting in front of a ki- uh, tiger cave. <laughs> uh, really kind of like another, another world from the practice at Spirit Rock. <laughs> but anyway, this is what he said, but nonetheless, this is very relevant. This is about the value of, of the third foundation of mindfulness, The really the value of practicing with the uh, mind and heart. And then remembering... I'll, I'll just read this as it's been translated. Remembering that we hear when we hear the word mind, it actually means thoughts and emotions, mind and heart. It's translation of the term citta, C-I-T-T-A, which has those connotations, not simply the mentals. But I'll, read, I'll, I'll use the word mind to mean both of those. So I'll close with this. Of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, a person's mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world. So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma. Understanding the mind is is the same as understanding Dhamma. Once the mind is known, the Dhamma, the teachings, in their entirety are known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nibbāna or nirvāna. The mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, so be sure to look after it well." So, Thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a minute or so, then we can talk together. reflections or questions, and Debbie, if you would like to go first with what you had earlier, um, feel free to do that. Well, I was going to say that it's it's um, it's a big leap of faith, um, I think, saying that awareness of a bad habit and then lessening of a, equals lessening of a bad habit. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot that has to go on between yeah. just awareness of it, Yeah. you know, and lessening of it. Yeah. And practice is all about. Yeah. Um, also that quote at the end about um, you know, the mind is a precious thing well the mind is maybe if you have if you've achieved nirvana it's this, you know, jewel, but it's really tough. The mind is he talking about? You know he's not is he so so speak for yourself, Achan Moon. to you know try to achieve <laughs> okay so a few a few thoughts there so it's uh, so it's really uh, maybe maybe two points for for the sake of uh, focus one one is really looking at the relationship between awareness let's say of a bad habit and the relation to the lessening of that habit and then secondly uh, thinking that the mind is a treasure how do we really understand that in the light of often seeing that the mind may sometimes feel like a cesspool, to use probably not the worst language we could possibly use. <laughs> so how do, we, how do we relate to those two points? So um, first, yeah, I think, I think both of these actually maybe do point, to some extent, to some elements of faith. You know, uh, faith in the sense that our deep nature is that of wisdom and awareness. I'll come back to that. I think that's not the main way that I would respond to your your points, but that that is there some. Um, So how does does the awareness of a pattern relate to the lessening of it? I think as we practice, we probably have a lot of uh, examples of that, just from practice. As we have more experience with practice, Uh, There probably are, we can probably think personally of a lot of ways that when we've noticed something uh, over time, it brings a particular habit or, let's say, negative pattern into awareness and that that uh, can result, particularly, let's say, initially with the ones that are not the strongest, not the hardest patterns. How many of you maybe have noticed some pattern which wasn't your utter hardest pattern actually with mindfulness, Shifting, changing, becoming less powerful. So, um, again, I'm thinking of, of, a, of maybe a, a difficult mind thought that, again, not the most difficult ones. The most difficult ones, and maybe this is what you're thinking of, the most difficult negative patterns are the hardest, of course. My experience initially was when I first meditated, uh, some of my negative patterns fell away rather quickly, and they were the least powerful. But they did fall away, and so the um, you know the mechanism, um, the mechanism of of uh, the way this lessens is that we you know, I think in two ways. Uh, first, we actually notice the you know we can have moments of noticing a pattern, and or let's say noticing let's say noticing um, my. Um, my tendencies to aversion when something doesn't go my way. Let's take that as an example. And I notice that my mind is is doing that, and that may be a very strong tendency, but maybe what I can notice is that as I study that more, uh, a few things kick in. First of all, when we have mindfulness, we have a little more space around whatever's happening. That space permits me sometimes to ask, do I really want to go this way? Do I really want to do that? That's partly what awareness does. It gives space. It, gives, it means that we're not totally stuck. I may be 90% stuck, but that 10% can actually be a pivot, so to speak. That 10% can actually, maybe for my lesser ones, might say, okay, I'm feeling a little bit of greed towards having uh, that extra piece of pie, to use the Thanksgiving example. And, and maybe it doesn't matter so much to me. I have a little mindfulness and maybe that in that moment, actually, I don't do it. Whereas if I didn't have the mindfulness, I would, right? Because I really have asked that question. With the mo- most difficult patterns, it takes a lot of mindfulness. It takes looking at the same pattern over and over and over again. And also, I think uh, sometimes strengthening the, uh, the awakened qualities, like uh, strengthening, if 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 aversion is a strong tendency, maybe it's involved with strengthening the quality of loving kindness or care, or or um, connection with others. So, again, I probably could take your question and have it be a whole whole talk, because it's a, it's a series of uh, good questions. And then, secondly. Um, I, that's maybe why it's you know the question of faith or the question of how can a Chan Moon say that the mind is a treasure. I think it's actually being able to tune in to the moments where the mind clearly is a treasure, which I, I know we've all had, where we're with the sunset and it's just the experience of beauty or and the, there's a clear mind or where there's the mind of care and love. And I think strengthening those is important. The teachings do base themselves on a sense that the, the awakened qualities are deeper than the unawakened qualities. To some extent that we may have to take that on faith to some extent. You can have faith that could be based on reading the text, on knowing people who seem to exemplify the realization of that understanding, but that is the, that is the teaching. And Sometimes when the mind is, is very negative, let's say, or very stuck, it's hard to remember that, right? It's hard to really believe that, right? And so um, there, I think continued practice makes a difference and sometimes deliberately tuning in to the um, qualities of freedom, the positive, that could be a very important practice. If we have a very aversive mind, practices like uh, mudita, Gratitude are very helpful. You know, we have to know our own conditioning. And, and of course, a teacher can help uh, point that out. Thank you. Thanks for the, thanks for the questions and reflections. Other, other questions or observations? Please, uh, Nancy. feeling aversion yeah. and wanting to be with the aversion and be mindful of it. Yeah. At the same time, it's aversion, and it means I want to get away from the experience yeah. that's causing the aversion. Yeah. So, so what is the proper balance between staying with that feeling of aversion and being mindfulness of that unpleasantness and... Using some hopefully skillful means to extricate oneself. Yeah, so, w- so what's the, in, in, when there's, for example, aversion, um, aversion means I want to get out of this experience typically, or let's get rid of it. And so how to work with mindfulness, in particular, how to work with mindfulness and, as it were, skillful ways to get out of it. Um, so that's interesting. It really relates to what I came to at the end of the talk, which is the relationship of mindfulness practice to skillful response. Let's say, I think it's uh, partly context bound, situation bound. You know, if you're if you're a, a brain surgeon and aversion arises right in the middle of surgery, you'd want to use the skillful ways to get away, get out of the aversion, right? If you're sitting in meditation. Or if you have, as it were, the luxury of mindfulness, uh, you could follow the instructions, which are just to really focus on the mindfulness and not to try to get away from it. You know? and, and the reason that mindfulness of aversion can work is that, again, you know, again, the, the brain science is helpful. We can actually have a sense of there being parallel neural pathways. And when you're actually being mindful uh, of aversion, there's not aversion. We sometimes say mindfulness of anger is not anger. Mindfulness of aversion is not aversion. So in that moment, uh, and again, the experientially it may feel like you're going back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, it may feel like that because that that's true. I'm caught in aversion for three seconds. I'm mindful for one second. Caught in aversion, back and forth. So that's okay. But the actual experience of mindfulness of the unpleasant there is not aversion at the moment of mindfulness. We can be mindful of the unpleasant. We can even be mindful sometimes of aversion, but the relation of mindfulness to the aversion is one more, we would say, of accepting, being with, Mm -hmm. rather than pushing away the aversion. So I think uh, when to be skillful and, let's say, uh, get out of the aversive state, when we're so stuck that we can't be mindful, when it's so strong that we're stuck, that's one reason, and then the other one would be context-related, when it's a wise response. you know, If you're having a discussion with your significant other and you have a certain amount of aversion for what the person said, you might say, Dear, let me be mindful for the next five minutes of my averse. Sometimes that might be skillful. You might have a practice where you do that with each other. And sometimes... It might just be to say, you know, I'm feeling aversion, but uh, and how can I be most wise? And you might say, I'm feeling aversion. Um, uh, I just wanted to let you know that. See, already there, there's a certain amount of mindfulness to say that. So if you're really, really stuck, really, 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 really stuck, then uh, do those skillful responses, which I mentioned at the end of the talk. And if you're in a situation where you can be mindful, better to do that. And then if the context is such that, you know, again, you're a brain surgeon or you're in the middle of a, a task that you need to do, you might do a skillful response, which helps you get back to balance. You know, If you're really noticing yourself, let's say you're needing to, I don't know, uh, uh, write a letter to someone and you really need to write a letter right now and you're so full of aversion towards something that happened earlier that you can't do it, and then you would, might use one of those responses. Then you go take a walk or talk with a friend or maybe meditate for five or ten minutes to get out of it if the, if the letter really has to be written. And if, if you have the luxury of being mindful, uh, then uh, we don't need to get out of the aversion. Again, that's, that goes against the way a lot of us think about meditation, right? We think, oh, I'm a negative state, let's get rid of it. Here the invitation is to explore it and to be with it. It goes against some of probably how we even approach meditation, right? The invitation is to be with it because we can learn from it and learn from it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we're, we're a little bit over time, so um, if, you, if, you, if you want to make a one-second comment, uh, we'll take that and then we'll, then we'll finish. Or not one second, but, you what know. Is the difference between self-help and mindfulness. Yeah. In the way you mm-hmm. relate to life, mm-hmm. and mindfulness is something else. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's not it's not coming from that place. It's coming from a place of wanting to awaken. So uh, so the Marty making a distinction between mindfulness, which has as its motivation to awaken, and sometimes what she was calling self-help, which which she was describing as maybe coming from a more a uh, self-centered place, maybe coming out of wanting or aversion, and again, we could we could talk about self-help in a more neutral language. You know, so self-help, as we ordinarily use it, could come out of a very skillful motivation. But you're p- particularly t- asking, I think this is what's relevant to our looking. When I want to, uh, what's my motivation for shifting a state? Where does it come from? Does it come from something that's problematic or does it come from something that's wise? That's really the the upshot. Okay, so um, we'll finish by, as we usually do, by first inviting us to uh, set an intention. I'll invite us to work with this practice in the next week and we can again come back next time and uh, compare notes. What's your intention for the next week with the practice of mindfulness of thoughts and emotions? then we close by remembering that we do this practice both for ourselves and we can see very clearly how we also do it for others. Mindfulness is a protection of self and other, really. And may our practice be beneficial to ourselves, to all of those with whom we're in contact. And then beyond that circle of immediate contact, may it be of benefit ultimately to all beings without exception.